Welcome to Deepen with Pastor Joby Martin. The Church of 1122 is a movement for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we're praying this message helps you deepen your relationship with Him. Now let's dive in. Okay, welcome back. We're in episode six, chapter six. I said last week right at the end, I don't know if you're allowed to have favorite mountains, but I do. And it's the Mount of Transfiguration. And so I am so excited. It's also the week before Easter. Mm -hmm. There's just a lot happening. I feel like us as a church, we get to this point and there's this just simmering excitement, angst as we look towards Easter, especially in my role, I help plan our services. And this time of year is always the most spiritually intense and exciting. And it's just all of the emotions. So Easter is right around the corner it's going to be awesome, but that's next week. So this week, we're talking Mount of Transfiguration. Will you cast out the demons that torment you? So just a light title. We thought Temptation last week was going to be tormenting. was heavy. Now we're casting out demons that torment you. So let's talk about the title. And I have a feeling there were other titles that you were probably throwing around as you were brainstorming. Why did you guys land on, or how did you land on, will you cast out the demons that torment you? Well, it has to do with the dad that we're going to meet down at the bottom of the mountain. And um, and the question, you know, I've had these questions at times where people say, all right, are you serious? You really believe in the 21st century, you believe in the demonic? And I would say, of course, first and foremost, because the Bible does. But let me just ask you, do you have things in your life that you don't want to do, yet you feel like there's another thing in you that compels you to do that thing? Do you know anybody that's ever struggled with an addiction? Well, what do you call that? Just mm-hmm. poor life choices? I don't think so, man. Right. I think we are wrestling against the principalities of this evil world. Mm-hmm. And you can't cast out the flesh, and you can't disciple a demon. And oftentimes, people try to People try to disciple a demon. They don't deal with it in the, in the arena that it needs to be dealt with. Or what is really just um, your own flesh and poor decision-making, they try to cast that out, and what you really need is discipline and the core root. That's where we get the word discipleship from. Mm, that's good. So before we get to the bottom of the mountain mm-hmm. where we're going to see the dad and his son and casting the demon out, Jesus is going to go up to the top of the mountain. Uh, I've asked this in several episodes, but Mount of Transfiguration, like what are we talking geographically with this mountain? They don't know. Okay. They got a couple of guesses, mm-hmm. but they're not 100% sure. Okay. I have a guess. Mm-hmm. Oh, let's hear it. Well, I'm, I'm basing this based on being with you in Israel at the teaching. The pre, I, think we're, I think Transfiguration is about Matthew 17, one chapter previous there in Caesarea Philippi. Jesus asked the question. I may have my chapters mixed up, but just just go with me. Jesus asked the question, who do you say that I am? And Peter makes his proclamation. You're the Christ. Jesus then says, upon this rock, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus is saying that from Caesarea Philippi. It's one of the three places that's the headwaters of the Jordan. You have Dan, Caesarea Philippi, and the third one I can't remember. But when you're you're in Caesarea Philippi, which is basically an, an old Persian sacrificial, human sacrificial temple. They, they worship the god Pan and all that sort of stuff. When you're there, 
because I think Jesus, it says they were in the region of Caesarea Philippi. They wouldn't have actually gone to the temple because that would have been defiled ground. I think he took them up top so they could look down on top or look down from up, up top onto it. And I think that's why Jesus is able to say the gates of hell because that was one of the colloquials for that place at the time. They called it the gates of hell because it was the worst thing any of them could imagine. 30 years later, Herod Antipas is going to gather about 3,000 Jews and slaughter them in gladiator fights. Mm -hmm. So it's a horrific place. But when you're standing there, if you look to the northeast, and I don't know how many miles it is, it's only, do you remember? It's like six or seven miles to Mount Hermon or Mount Hermon. And it's this huge white-capped, it's the you know it's the biggest mountain you can see from anywhere. So my theory is that when they get to the Mount of Transfiguration, it's in the next chapter. They've come from Caesarea Philippi. It would be the logical place. It is snow capped. Everything up there is glistening white. I also think it's really cool to note that when it happens and Jesus is transfigured, the Father then speaks. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Do what he tells you to do. That that proclamation, that revelation of Jesus as the son didn't come until after Peter had made his proclamation. So the thing that we want as people is we want the revelation before we stand on the mount in the middle of hell alone on a rock and make the proclamation. Mm. Peter did it the exact opposite. He made the proclamation, and then the Lord allowed him to see the revelation come true. My theory is it happened on Herman. I like it. So, you know, we've heard the sermon, read the book, but if anyone maybe just stumbled upon this podcast somewhere in the cloud somewhere, um, give us just your quick storyteller version of the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, Jesus heads up onto this mountain. He takes Peter, James, and John with him. Uh, my theory is that because these three are, they get in the most trouble. It's not because they're the favorite and all of that. Because um, again, if you back up to Caesarea Philippi, uh, Peter screws that up. Because right after he gets his name changed, he makes the declaration that Jesus builds the church on. Within the same chapter, he also gets called the devil because he makes it all about him. By the time you get to Matthew chapter 20, so just a couple chapters after the Mountain of Transfiguration, James and John make a power play and send their mom to sit at his right and left. So these are three of the biggest screw-ups of all the disciples. Jesus says, come with me. And then the Bible just says he is transfigured. And different gospel writers describe it different ways. Um, One of them says his face is like lightning. Uh, One says that it's bright as the sun. Mark says that he's as white as bleach, which he's not (laughs) as descriptive as the others. And, And ultimately, he is demonstrating his glory up on the mountain. Peter is always going to talk first, always going to talk most. He makes it all about him, which is never a good thing to do. And ultimately, what they want to do is they have this incredible experience with the Lord in his presence, and they are like, we're done, let's stay here. And the reason I talk about that before we get down to the valley is because I think a lot of us have that same temptation, mm-hmm. that we just want to sit and soak in his glory up on the mountain. Mm-hmm. But we were created for, for really for more than that. We were created for his mission. You have a quote um, in the book, and I, I can't remember who said it, but it said, 
talking about the transfiguration. His divinity is bursting forth through his humanity. The miracle is not that Jesus was transfigured on the mountain, and the miracle is not that Peter, James, and John could see his glory. The real miracle is that his divinity was shrouded in humanity for 33 years. That's an incredible quote. That's because we read it and we think, oh, his face is shining. This is crazy that they were able to see it when the reality actually is, no, it's the fact that he put on flesh for 33 years and walked around like a human. That is the actual miracle. Yeah, so I have a friend that's a pastor at a church in Southern California named Chris Brown. And the first time I ever heard, uh, so he said that his glory is shrouded in humanity. And so he said that. And I begin to think about it. And then you think um, Moses is kind of negotiating with God after he's led God's people out of, you know, in the Exodus, out of Egypt. And he says to God, if you're not going, I don't want to go with you. Or if you're not going, I don't want to go because all I want to do is be with you. And then Moses makes this request, show me your glory. And God's like, nope. But in this miracle of incarnation where the word becomes flesh and dwelt among us, that, that Peter, James, and God... Peter, James, and John get to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. It is a new covenant. It's a really big deal. I love it. So you just mentioned they have this amazing worship experience. I mean, they're face-to-face with the manifest presence of God. Yeah, and then Moses and Elijah show up to be a part of it. Casually. Just, there they are. (laughs) And the clouds come and God speaks and it's a whole thing. Um, So what for you guys... What have been those intense worship experiences? Like, have, what if you look back on your life? And I always think it's fun to look back on those mountaintop moments because it kind of reminds you a lot of times, depending on what season you're in, of just the overwhelming presence of God. So I'd love for you guys to share what were some what what's a moment that stands out to you? So those moments matter, man. I'm I'm not trying to say in the book they don't matter. They sure. matter like crazy. Uh, I, and I can tell you one of the moments, sometimes they're in big events, you know, with a lot of folks and all that, which are awesome. Sometimes, for me, I'm studying this text, and I see Elijah and Moses. And one of the things I try to do, we talk about this all the time, is I think the Christians should do two things. Invite God to fill up their imagination so you're not just making stuff up. And think about the grandness, the character, the nature of God, right? Mm. Um, like the psalmist would say, uh, when I see the vastness of the stars, who am I that you would be mindful of me? Mm-hmm. So think about how big God is. But then also go super granular and think, okay, if I was on the mountain of transfiguration, what would that be like? And there you are, and then here's Moses out of nowhere, and you're right. like, ah, oh, it's Moses and Elijah. Okay, and so I'm, I'm, I'm getting ready for the sermon, studying this, and then... I think it's a really good idea to always use the Bible as commentary unto itself. And when it hit me one day, sitting in a tree stand, that in Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is going to say, for by works of the law, no one will be declared righteous. So God manifested a righteousness apart from the law, dash, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Paul says the law... Mm-hmm. And the prophets bear witness to a manifestation of alien righteousness. And on the mountain of transfiguration, the guy that wrote the law and the number one main prophet mm-hmm. in the Bible are bearing witness 
right. to the manifestation of the man. My head exploded. <laughs> I stood up in my tree stand. I cried. I was like, oh, moments like that for me, sure. man. When God reveals a truth that has always been in the Word, I have degrees in this stuff, and for whatever reason, I missed it until that day that the Spirit of God mm. decided to go here. I'm going to let you see this. So good. Moments like that for me are really, really really big. What about for you, Charles? Been to Israel a couple of times. A couple of times with Joby. Once. I've still yet to go to Israel. Well, you need to go. You need to go with us. But but, yeah, Pastor Joby did. I would just like to say it one more time (laughs) for the record, and our team's all here, and Pastor Joby's assistant Stephanie. You need to mark this down. I'm going to Israel. Okay. The entire trip, I mean, you start in the Galilee, you, you, you follow the, the footsteps of Jesus the way we do the trip, and then you end up in Jerusalem, and everything culminates in a, in a final day in Jerusalem, starting in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Olive Garden, where Jesus is crushed, and he, he prays, sweats, of drops of blood, and then he's taken to Caiaphas' house. He's arrested and taken to Caiaphas' house. So they drag him out of the garden, across the brook Kidron, he's kind of retracing in reverse David's David's course out of the temple when Absalom betrayed him and it's this beautiful oh, wow. imagery thing that happens and you see that and and then you go up to this place where they think Caiaphas house was and they they're pretty certain they have a pretty good idea the high priest's house and it overlooks what would be the southern part of the temple. From Caiaphas' house, you can see the southern steps, which is later where Peter will show up in Acts 2 and give the second best sermon ever. It's probably the place where Jesus, at age 12, argued and then with, the, with the lawgivers and then later told Mary, did you not know it must be about my father's house? But he's arrested there. He's struck in the face. Um, he's probably kept overnight. And then early in the morning, he's taken to Pontius Pilate's uh, uh, Pilate's Praetorium, and there's you, you, there's a lot about Israel that you don't know for certain because you know everything's been covered over and built on and whatnot. So it's hard to say for certain that something happened here, but because Herod was such a massive builder, anytime that you get to something that's Herodian, Herodian stones are right on top of Mount Moriah. So when you get to a Herodian stone, which you can tell by the way it's bordered. You know you're on the base of the mountain because the next thing is Mount Moriah. And you also know that if it's Herodian, chances are pretty good Jesus brushed up against it. So we go to Caiaphas' house. We see the cell he was probably held in overnight. And then you, you come out of the city, and we actually did this at night. You, you come to what we would call the Western Wall today, which is where the traditional Jews come up and and um, say prayers, and they think it's the, cl- the closest place they can get to the, where the Holy of Holies was. And you kind of wind down beneath, because the roads we're on today are about 30 feet above the roads that Jesus walked on. And through excavation, they've, they've now discovered the Herodian road that, that led from Caiaphas' house to Pilate's praetorium. And the stones are about as big as that table. One stone is. And they're, they're, they're about this tall. I mean, they're huge. They're also very worn and very slick. And for some reason, when this happened in our trip, I had been in Isaiah 53. He's crushed. Mm. He's wounded. He's pierced. He's, he's carried all every... I mean, it's the Father's good pleasure to crush him. Then it also says that Jesus became unrecognizable as a man. 
Another translation says he was marred more than the sons of man. So Mark Croslin, who's one of our tour guides, has got us down underneath along the Western Wall and you walk along and you're literally touching the rock of Mount Moriah as you walk through this little tunnel. And then the tunnel sort of exits out onto uh, a room that's about the size of this room and about this tall, maybe 12, 14 feet tall. But the, the thing that you're looking at is this shiny, it almost looks like polished concrete. But this, they're stones, and they're banded, and you know it's Herodian. And you know, at least as much as we know anything, that Jesus was brought from Caiaphas. He was put down here at Pilate's Praetorium. He was, la- he was lashed to a post. And then it, they took a Roman scourge, which wasn't an Indiana Jones whip, but it was a, a whip with a wooden handle and then pieces of mm. um, sinew about that long. And they'd put... Um, iron or rock or glass or something sharp embedded in the end of it so that when the the one swinging it would swing it it wouldn't just slap and leave like a a indiana jones pop it would embed into the flesh and so that when he pulled it off it would pull off chunks so when scripture says jesus was unrecognizable as a man that means that the whip had come around his torso had come around his neck and removed flesh Jesus didn't look like a human. So all those pretty pictures we have of the crucifixion with Jesus hanging up there looks like you and me. That's not true. Mm-hmm. He'd been shredded. He was hamburger. By the time I get on this tour to this Herodian road, I see these stones, and then I see the little place where right outside Pilate's Praetorium, there's a little hole about that big in the stone that has been cut in that stone for 2,000 years, and it's where they would have put the post So there's a very good chance, again, I mean, we don't know for certain, but there's a very good chance that my king, your king, our king, the very son of God, was lashed to a post right there, and you can touch the stone. Mm -hmm. And not only that, but about 10 feet away, if you look over there, there's this little checkerboard thing on the stone. It looks like a a tic-tac-toe board, but about like 10 or 12 lines. And it was, it was caused by grooves that, it was a game where the soldiers played, and they would take these rocks, and they would, it was a gambling game, and they would draw these things, and, and they would carve these grooves in the stone, and it's actually where they would cast lots. So, worship experience, where did the, where, is the, where, did the, where did the word come alive for me, and on one, standing there on those Herodian stones? knowing that my king has been falsely arrested and paraded down the street and mocked and spit on, and they plucked out his beard and they beat him with rods. And then they scourged him. For me. And I know me, and I'm not worth that. I stood there and I just wept. My tears just covered those stones. Because it struck me, like, this really happened. This is not some story out of that book. Mm. This man I'm reading about was really arrested in that garden right there, taken to that house, walked down this room, this road, where they beat him mercilessly and then told him to carry his wood outside where they burned the trash and nailed him to it. A year later, we returned, and I got to take my oldest son with me, Charlie. He's in seminary, and... 
I would love to take all our boys. But anyway, we took Charlie. And I, this, this, this thing, this moment, this experience was like, I, I wanted Charlie to get it. Like he, he, I, he, I've told him the stories. He knows he's heard me teach on the cross. He's read my book. He, he knows all this stuff, but I wanted him to get it, but I also didn't want to be that dad saying, Hey, make sure you get this and make sure you understand the meaning. And I just didn't say anything. So we go on this tour at night, same thing. Mark's leading us. We go down along the Western wall, wind our way down. And I just sort of hung back and I didn't say a word to Charlie. And we wind along, we go through this little tunnel, we get out to the to the stones and I walk across the stones and I, I literally it's one of for me one of the most holy places because he shed his blood right there on that rock right and I it's like holy ground I want to take my shoes off and I stepped across it and I went to the other side and Christy was standing next to me and when I turned around I looked back in the hallway where the hallway meets the road and my son is on his knees mm shredded and he's got one hand on the rock and the other hand in the air and he's just and i thought i can go be with jesus like he's he got it he i don't need to teach him anything he he got it long story short the word continues to come alive not only there in israel but for us we would have these the law and the prophets bear witness to it moments and i like i y'all y'all are excited to read the book i was excited to be able to listen to be able to write it cuz i just got to read it before you all that's mm-hmm. really kind of all that happened yeah it's good yeah and we, <clears throat> a big part of the thing we try to do the reason we're talking about it, Israel is done is because uh, we've been there and that's where it actually happened right which is why do we go to these mountains? Because they were actual places. This is not a story. And it does. It comes alive. And through the book, what we're trying to do is help those actual events come alive sure. for folks. So for me, three that kind of are all tied together. And, and I thought about it when you started mentioning Israel. The first time I ever went to Caesarea Philippi. This is the place where Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my ecclesia, my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. And so the very first time I went, I went with a really small crew because I wanted to, I wanted to receive it before I had to teach it. Sure. You know? And we get there, and I see Caesarea Philippi. I'd seen pictures of this since, uh, I don't know, 20, 30 years. And I walk up on it, and I just told the crew where it is, Cancel the day. I need to stay here. Mm. And everybody's great. They don't mess with me. And so I go sit on a rock and think this is the first time the idea of church has ever been uttered out loud by the Son of God, by anybody, but it just happened to be the Son of God. And I sit on this rock, and I look at the gates of hell, and I'm with you. I think he was actually up top looking down on this camping trip with these 12 guys. And I just... I just am like, Lord, I, I've given my life to serve your church. If this thing that we're doing at the old Walmart and now all of our campuses with the music and the lights and the videos and the me talking with a face mic and a, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. If we're, if, if that, if what we're doing is not what you were talking about here, you got to tell me right. and I got to go figure out something to do with my life. Okay. I stayed there for four hours and, and, and am just convinced 
that what we do is herald the gospel, and that's what Jesus said the church would be built on, and felt this like fatherly pat on the back, like, go get them, buddy. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, but how do you know? How do you know? How do you know that you're not just making up these feelings? You know? Mm-hmm. No audible voice. There's not a verse in the Bible that says the church of 1122 should conduct itself this way. Okay. <laughs> right. So, we leave there. If you ever go to Israel with us, we chase Jesus around. So, we end up in Jerusalem. So, we, we, we start in Bethlehem, we go up to the Galilee. And then we come down to Jerusalem. We don't start in Jerusalem at the end. Okay, so after, it's like the day after Caesarea Philippi, we go to Caiaphas's house. It is his house because it's where the chief priest would live. He's got a jail cell underneath his home. And it, it's it. It's the only way you can get from the Mount of Olives to the south side of the temple. And there are these steps that he would have walked. It's where Peter denies Christ. It's all happening right in this spot. So we're looking at it. We're like, you know kind of blown away and then i'm leaving and we're walking up these steps and from israel i hear pastor joby and i'm like all right it's one thing to get recognized at walmart and jacksonville it's another thing when you're at caiaphas's house in jerusalem and straight up i turn around and there are these college kids from our church no way yep there are these like two of them are from our church and they are with ywam youth with a mission Mm -hmm. and they are serving as missionaries in jordan Wow. And they've got like a free weekend, and so they haul it over to Jerusalem to see the sights. And and I'm thinking, I was just praying yesterday, God, is this thing that we're doing what we're supposed to be doing? And the next day, he bumps me into some of the people that we're discipling mm-hmm. that are our missionaries that are going right. to the ends of the earth. And so, you know, we're talking to them, and we're staying in like super nice five star places, you know, and eating beautiful food. And they are roughing it in hostels, and all they've eaten is hummus and pita bread. And so we give them every dollar we have in our pockets, which was several hundred dollars. We were like, please get a get some lamb or something decent to eat. And then we're about to leave, and I go, can I? Let me just pray for you. Can I pray for you? And I put my hands on them, just just outside of Caiaphas's house, like up the steps, you know, mm-hmm. where you can mm-hmm. see. And I'm just praying. I don't I don't really think about it. I'm like, our good and gracious Heavenly Father, I pray for these kids that are taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, which is really where we live, mm-hmm. but now they've boomeranged it back around to here. <laughs> and you gave us the Great Commission right over there. So mm-hmm. the place where Jesus oh gives the Great Commission, you can almost see. It's, it's on the other side of the Mount of Olives. You can see it from there. And I'm like, God, would you just fill them with the Holy Spirit? That fell right over there. It was, you know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. So I'm walking away from that thinking, wow, maybe we are doing what he was talking about in, in Matthew 16. And then the next weekend I get home and we're having church. And we declare the gospel and ask, I think it was like a prayer and anointing weekend. And we ask people to come and be prayed for if they need to be healed. Mm. And our church is flooded Mm -hmm. with people just saying, I need Jesus to heal me. Mm -hmm. And I just had this real confirmation that the thing that Jesus was talking about in Caesarea Philippi, the thing that we're going to talk about at the bottom of the mountain of transfiguration, Mm -hmm. and the thing that we're doing every single weekend all over Jacksonville and Jessup and all over the place now, that we're doing the thing that he told us to do. That's right. So before we get to the bottom of the mountain, because um, I think it's a good segue to get there, um, 
we talk about that the mission of God is the glory of God. And you talk about this in the book and you mention it when you preach a lot, but can you unpack that a little, especially in regards to this mountaintop experience and where they're headed down the mountain? Yeah. So it became real popular. I don't know how much people know about like church growth world, but there was this real movement in the late eighties, early nineties, some people call it the church growth movement. It was a seeker sensitive model where, 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 and I get it. I get it. The, the church was so out of date. These were some very smart men and women that came in and said, we need to update things and make things relevant and make things, you know, present church in a way that people could understand. And really there were a lot of people that say that the people are the mission. That's what the mission is. The mission is the people of God. And then there was this other kind of camp of people, really either high church folks or, or theological type folks that would say, no, 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 it's all about the glory of God. And so we've got a guy on our staff, Pastor Michael Olson, who is a dear brother, dear friend, and is just like haunted by deep theological questions every day of his life. He can't breathe. And so, <laughs> and he also... We love you, Michael. We love you. And he also came from a church... Um, I don't want to ever say bad things about other churches, but it, the practicalities and tactics and strategies of, re, of I wouldn't even say reaching, of engaging with people and then assimilating them into the way they did a thing was the most important thing. Right. And so one day early on when Pastor Olson was on our staff and was still like kicking the tires of Lev 22, and, and he asked me one time, What's more important, the mission of God or the glory of God? And I just had to let him know that those are not two different things. Mm -hmm. The mission of God is the glory of God, and the mission of God to preach the gospel to the very ends of the earth, to draw all that he would draw unto himself, is all for his glory. Mm. And he is most glorified when we are all about his mission, which is reaching people for the glory of God. That's good. And so... Jesus takes these boys up on the mountain and displays his glory. That's good. Okay, so they're going to come down the mountain, and they encounter a dad. And the dad is desperate because his son has a demon that's tormenting him, and not just, like, poking at him, but, like, throwing him into fires, which you mentioned in the book. Fires would have been everywhere because... That's how they cooked everything. Yeah, the two things that dad mentions is he throws him into water or throws him into a fire. And if you go to the Galilee, they live, on, they live by the sea, and every meal is cooked over an open fire. Mm -hmm. The Joby Martin translation is, the enemy is trying to kill him with every step of his life. Right. Every day we can't get away from this. So talk to us a little, because I just love how you, you encapsulate the true desperation of this dad. Like, he's just a dad, like the way you two are dads. Yeah, well, um, to get the full picture, you should look at all, the, all of the gospel writers' um, description of this, because different gospel writers just bring different elements of the reality that happened. First and foremost, this is not a story. This right. is not like flannel graph or veggie tales or a prayer. This is not a parable. This, this dad had a job. He had a certain hair color. He, and, and he's a dad, and there's no pain like kid pain, man. I'm just telling you, there's no pain like kid pain. 
and he and he brings his son. I mean, think about it. Okay, again, let's go granular and try to imagine if you're him. I don't know what he believes about Jesus. We know he kind of believes, but he kind of doesn't. Because mm-hmm. when you get to Mark nine nine, he makes that clear. But he's heard the miracle worker is in his region, close to his hometown. And if he's like any other dad, he's tried every other thing for the sake of his kid. And he's just thinking, if I can just get him to the miracle worker, maybe, maybe, maybe he could do something. But instead of getting to Jesus, he gets to the disciples, and they get in some kind of denominational argument or something. I don't know what they're talking about, but it ain't about Jesus, because mm-hmm. Jesus comes down the mountain, and he's like, what's up? And what are y'all arguing about? And the dad, the Bible says, Matthew, I think, says that he falls on his face mm-hmm. before Jesus and said, my son is sick, and I brought him to your disciples, but they couldn't do anything. One of the things, too, that hits me is when Jesus says, how long has this been happening? And the dad says, from childhood, not, not from birth. Mm-hmm. There are Greek words that mean birth, newborn, and there are Greek words that mean like, you know, elementary age, right. which means when him and his mama came home from the hospital, that's not how it worked, but you know what I mean. And they are holding this little baby boy wrapped up in swaddling clothes, and they got hopes, and they got dreams, and they're like, I wonder what he's going to be. I wonder what he's going to do. And then one day, one of them goes, I think something's wrong. I think something's wrong. And then by the time they get to this place, everything's wrong. And he is desperate, desperate. And so he says to Jesus, if you think about this, man, he says he does not negotiate with Jesus. He's just desperate for him to do something. A negotiation would be, all right, I'll start going to the temple. I'll start tithing. I'll clean up my act. And if I do my part, will you do what I've heard you can do? Will you do a miracle? He brings none of that. All he does is, if you can, will you heal my son? He's just asking for a favor. Hmm. And if you've ever prayed a prayer with a request in it, that's all you're doing. You're saying, God, I need a favor. Hmm. God, I need you to favor me, not because of anything I've done. But I just need, if you've ever prayed to receive Christ, ultimately what you're saying is, God, I am in an impossible situation. I need a favor. I need you to give me your favor, even though I don't deserve it. And so this dad says, if you can. Would you heal my son? And then Jesus obviously says, if anything's possible for one who believes. And then the Bible says, immediately he cries out. We lose a little of that in the English translation. He doesn't wait. He doesn't think about it. He doesn't like. Mm. The thing that immediately comes out of your mouth is like what's right at the surface of your heart. That's why Jesus is going to say in another place, out of an overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what? What overflows out of this dude's mouth? He screams, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. This is how you know this, this dad is desperate. He's almost saying, like, I want to believe. I'm trying to believe. Can you help me believe? I'm bringing all the belief I got, but it ain't very much. And then I look at my son, and I look at the circumstances, and I look at the prayed prayers, and I look at the doctor's visits, and I look at the what the counselor said, and then I listen to what my friends asked, and, man, the circumstances are piling up and piling up and piling up, and my belief isn't very much, but I'll bring whatever I have to you. I need help. 
That's what's going on. That's different than a flannel graph Sunday school story, and mm-hmm. you already know the ending, so you just breeze by it, and you know how it's going to go. And I'm just telling you, we talked about it last week, like, you know, my friend Brad Bowen going to be with the Lord, and the desperation I felt to just get to church, to be in the presence of Jesus, and just go get on that altar and throw a whole bunch of belief and unbelief up there mm-hmm. together and just let him sort it out for me. I think there's a bunch of people, Allie, that show up to our church every week and they are in a desperate place in their life. And I also think people don't realize that the scripture even speaks to them. That's right. Because they, they thought it was a story. Or, no doubt. So, How can we work on bringing our true self to Jesus the way this dad does? Uh, well, the first thing I'd see there is you, got, you quit negotiating. Mm-hmm. This is not like an if then. This is not like if I do my part, will you do your part? Like he's a good dad. He loves his kids. And you don't have to negotiate with your dad. You just come to him and you say, I need help. Mm. I need help. How is prayer? So this dad sees Jesus in the flesh. Like you said, this is a real story. Jesus, a real person that the dad is encountering. And now we have prayer as our language um, and our communication channel to the Father, to Jesus. So how does that make it, how is that the most powerful tool that we have? How is prayer the most powerful tool we have? Well, it worked for Jesus, so we can start there. <laughs> One of the things I love about the story with the dad, and I'll, I'll come back around to that, but let me, before we, he brings his son, he's, he's desperate. He brings his son. The New American Standard says when he gets there, he describes his son as a lunatic. The ESV says he has seizures. Whatever it is, we know that something in the boy is causing the boy to do something that both the boy and the father don't want him to do. Something outside the boy has entered the boy, and we know that because Jesus then is very clear. Jesus speaks to the demon in the boy, and Scripture says it is came out of him, the boy. So there were two things. There was the boy, and then there was a, we struggle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and principalities of this dark world. There was a, something demonic there that had somehow, some, and through some way, some door, whatever, I don't know, entered the boy. This has been, this whole, look, I grew up in a, in a, in a across the spectrum from Joby. He grew up in really Baptist. I grew up really wildly charismatic. And so this whole demonic thing and the casting out of the demonic was much more in my um, experience. At least I grew up with it being much more normal. I would go to churches like with my friends and stuff, and I would say, when are y'all going to do the stuff? I mean, that was like my response. I just like, I didn't know. Like that wasn't how everybody did church. And I would later learn as I sort of watched this thing evolve and the charismatic movement became charismania. And, um, and I have a lot of love for a lot of the roots. I don't have a lot of love for what it became because people began showing up as like an experience junkie mm-hmm. saying, I just want the experience. Don't bother me with that thing. Mm-hmm. I later saw a beautiful merging in the renewal but you know, with the word and, and the power of the Holy Spirit. But the point I'm trying to make is the truth in gospel is that we as people, while we are possessed by the Holy Spirit, 
when we surrender to the Lordship of Jesus, and He owns us by right and deed, we can be oppressed by the demonic. And there is a very real demonic oppression. Satan did take a third of, third of them with him. Okay, mm-hmm. So there, there are... Derek Prince used to say that they are persons, uh, disembodied persons is the way he used to dis- describe them, persons without bodies, and that they they have orders and assignments, and they actually do work with a ruler who is the kingdom of darkness, and they really do oppress and attack us. As I've kind of like wrestled through this and prayed with people, and folks have asked me, like, you, you really believe this? Like, well, yeah, I believe it because it's in Scripture. Well, do you believe a Christian can be possessed? No, I don't. I think we get that whole translation problem from the King James, and I'm not knocking the King James. I love it. But there's one word in there where it talks about possession, and I think that's unfortunate. I think oppression is entirely, yes, that's what we... It's like we live in the United States of America. Theoretically, we are protected and under the governance of the government and the military. So we are that's like that's our sovereign protection in this country. Is it possible for us as citizens living here to be oppressed by other people? Well, sure. See reference 9-11. The, the idea that this father brings his son who is oppressed and there's something in there ought to be a great encouragement to us because Jesus later says, these things I have done and greater things you will do because I go to be with the Father. And then as you read the book of Acts, you turn the page, Pentecost occurs, he sends the helper, and the disciples finally figure this out. What we see happening, and we see this with Simon, and I can't remember, that's Acts 8 or 9 or whatever. But in the Simon is the only one in Scripture described as the evangelist. Paul tells Timothy to be an evangelist. Simon is the evangelist. When we see in his ministry, he he proclaims Christ, he speaks the gospel, and then when he does that, it says right after that, demons are cast out, sick people are healed. And as you study the Acts of the Apostles, when they encountered people anywhere and they proclaimed the gospel, it says demons were cast out. In 60% of Jesus' healings, demons were cast out first. So somehow the enemy has abused this. You know, we've seen it with red hair, you know, big haired people on TV and whatever, and it's become this whatever that's abused. We've seen the abuses of it, but the abuses don't negate the truth that is in Scripture. And the truth that is in Scripture is that Jesus has shown us that there is an attack from the enemy. And the enemy somehow, through, through sin, through bad, whatever, has access to us in some way. And while we may not be possessed, we can be oppressed. And, well, we can talk about what are our weapons against that, starting with prayer and then the word. But I love the fact that Jesus showed mercy on him. And then very just, it, it was just spoke a word. And it says, it came out of the boy. And I think the... The apostles, the disciples' heads were probably on a swivel going, because as you look at the entirety of Scripture, look at all of what the prophets did. They raised the dead. Mm -hmm. Sick people were healed. The same types of miracles that occurred in the New Testament occurred in the Old Testament. The only thing that did not occur in the Old that does occur in the New is that the kingdom of darkness is now cast out 
by the Son of God who empowers us to do the same. Yeah, I mean, one of the quickest ways is just try to get your mind around it. If you've thought any talk of demonic is kind of weird, because it is weird, man. We're talking about things that are sure, not yeah. natural. These are supernatural. So, If it makes you uncomfortable, yeah. there's a reason why. Right. I mentioned it, I don't know if it was last week or this week, I can't remember, but um, the this idea of addiction, if you've known somebody with an addiction, there we would all admit there is like a thing mm-hmm. that isn't you that tries to lead you down a road that you told yourself you would never go down again, and yet there is this, what do you call that? Or let's back up to the to the 20th century. You think Hitler's problem was just like poor upbringing, not enough education, and poor decision making? Or I don't know anybody that would not say that is evil. So we have these like surface words that we're okay with, but there's something much deeper than sure. that. And your question, I think you were asking about prayer. If you yeah. if you look at the follow up conversation with Jesus and the disciples later after they see the miracle, after they see the boy healed. Which, by the way, part of the good news of the gospel of Jesus is the dad does not, uh, Jesus does not look at the dad and say, once you get your faith meter up Amen. to right. like miracle level, then right. I'll do something for you. Right. Yeah. But he heals the dude's son. Yeah, he meets him right where he is. Mm. So then later, the disciples are like, hey, boss, so uh, good job. And why couldn't <laughs> we? And he says, uh, this kind can only be cast out by prayer. So here's what I think is happening. Okay. Jesus is saying, you, you always, I know I was up there and you were down here, but you always have access to me and my power mm. through prayer, which is true right now for me and you. Uh, I know the spirit is in us, but Jesus himself is up here and we're down here. And we have this access to him that is the same power that he has handed to us. And if you look at the end of, Ephesians 6, like the spiritual warfare chapter, after Paul goes through the what it means to put on the full armor of God, he makes this request, two things. He's like, pray for me with all kinds of prayers for all the saints at all times. Pray, 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 pray that we would declare the gospel with boldness, mm-hmm. that it is the word and prayer Mm. are our weapons of warfare against the enemy and his evil schemes. That's good. Anything you want to add? I know you had mentioned talking about the weapons. I'll try and put this in some pragmatic terms. The Lord has allowed me to walk with a group of men for 15 years to kind of do life together, and we, we, we know each other's. The Scripture says Jesus Christ will judge the secrets of men. I think it's pretty safe to say that at this point in time, we know each other's secrets. We know what we've hidden in our closets, the mm-hmm. stuff we're taking in the grave. But as guys have come and gone, and as we've kind of done ministry together, and the Lord has allowed us to, because of what he's brought us through and what he's healed us from and delivered us out of, he's allowed us to walk with a whole bunch of other men. And w- one thing that I've seen is that wherever you find uh, men mired in porn. It, there's an addiction. Mm. And, and that's two things that demons do is they torment and they entice. And I've have yet to meet a man who's not tormented and enticed by porn. Mm. 
and as as we've kind of unpacked it and kind of walked through what kind of prayer you know is needed to walk out of that starting with repentance and then just sort of cleaning house there's a the thing we've just discovered is there's a spirit there like i can't see it i don't know i don't want to tell you what it looks like but i think it it comes from that that word for sexual perversion in scripture which is pornuo joby's taught on this a bunch but it's the only thing i know to there's just like a spirit of pornuo mm. that grips guys through the eye gate of their eye and then grabs a hold of them and if you ask most all of them they will tell you i hate that i do this right. i hate myself i mean that whole thing and i can't tell you the number of times we've prayed with guys and it's just it's not i don't know i don't want to make this about me i don't have a, i don't have the monopoly on this and i'm not pretending like i got this all figured out and i know what i'm doing all i know is scripture says what it says guys are addicted we sit down and pray and we tell the thing to leave and in more than a lot of occasions we'll either see something physically happen that wasn't happening before mm. or the person will say to us man i just felt this and it's without fail it's always something leaving i say that when paul said i want to know christ and the power of his resurrection i think this is a little bit of what he's talking about sure i think we we castrate the gospel sometimes because we we want to be respectable and we want to be i want people to like me i want i don't want to and granted i realize all of this has been abused i get it i saw it but the abuses don't negate the truth of what scripture says mm -hmm. so we can somehow or another we just got to press in remain tr tra faithful and true to the scripture and then just Pray in honesty and ask the Holy Spirit to do what the Holy Spirit does. Yeah, so we talked about casting out demons, right? So um, yeah. the reason that we do prayer and anointing at our church is because I do not claim to be a faith healer, but I am a Bible believer. Amen. And the, and the book just says it. James chapter 5, brother of Jesus writes this down. Anyone among you sick? There's a long list of what that could mean. Mm -hmm. So this dad has a sick boy, so what does he do? He brings him to Jesus. If anybody at church is sick, what do you do? Well, you, you call together the authority that God has put in place. You call together the, the elders of the church. You take oil, which has represented the presence and spirit of God, really in Old Testament and New Testament. But as New Testament believers, too, we also understand that this oil that we have is a picture of the, it's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of the crushing of the Son of God, who in the Garden of Gethsemane, the place of the crushing, says, not my will, your will be done. And as the weight of the wrath of God for the judgment of sin came down upon Jesus, blood and water flowed, and the way we represent that is oil. Mm -hmm. And you take that and you put it on a person, and then you confess sins to one another, you pray for healing, and the prayer of a righteous man availeth much, mm -hmm. and you will be healed. Mm -hmm. There's a difference between promising of cures and heals. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people are cured, all believers are healed. Stretch this thing out long enough, there's no tears. Amen. Nobody walks with a limp. That's okay. Right. So the reason that we do this 
It's because the Bible says to do it. Yeah. Look, man, I'm gonna tell you, like you said. I mean, I'm a I'm a Baptist that didn't even go to church. So even if they ever <laughs> prayed something a little, I was never even I never saw it. So, <clears throat> but we do that because the book says it. When, one of the things I want to I want to be this kind of church. All right. In the book of Acts, I love this account. There are the seven sons of Sceva. <laughs> and these guys have heard of the healing ministry of Paul. And they're like, we're going to do this. And, and the Bible says they are itinerant Jewish exorcists. Like, that's a job. I didn't even know you could be one of those, but they are. And so they go find a demon-possessed person. And they say, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom Paul talks about, come out. And then the demons talk back to the seven sons of Sceva. And the demons go, here's what they say, Jesus we know, Paul we've heard of. Who are you? All right. So you don't want to roll in here if you don't know Jesus because you're going to get the who are you. Right. Mm -hmm. That's good, though. That's a serious truth. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No doubt. No doubt. This is when you're like playing games for game's sake. That's not what we're talking about, man. We're talking about a little boy that needs to be healed for the glory of God. I want... I hope and pray our church is at least the kind of church where they're like, Jesus we know. 1122, we've heard of them. Amen. And that's not good news for the enemy. No. Right. You know? And then just in case you're not familiar with the son, I know y'all are familiar, but in case you're listening, you're not sure what happened. And then the Bible says that the demons, the demon-possessed man jumps on the seven sons of Sceva and beats them, and it says they fled wounded and naked. They got their pants beat off of them. That's a wounding that's going to take a yeah. lot of like <laughs> counseling to get through. For sure. I think it's good to unpack everything you said, Charles, and why we anoint. I think it's so good because our church, we have people from all different kind of backgrounds, and some are walking in with wounds that... Mm-hmm. They saw it abused and they're shying away from it. We have people who have never even heard of prayer and anointing. I had never heard of prayer and anointing before I came to 1122. And and we have people who they're eating it up. They're like, yeah, let's do this. Every weekend we should be prayer and anointing. And so I think it's really good to unpack. This is in scripture. Prayer and anointing is, oh, it always goes together, right? Where there's prayer. Yeah. Um, and I think even in the book you talk about, or I know in the book that you can also anoint at home. It doesn't have to be at a church service that we've yeah. planned it for. So what, c- could you give a word of encouragement for the group of people? Maybe they sat in services and, you know, the enemy was feeding lies to them and they didn't come forward for prayer. And they're now sitting at home this week thinking, I really wanted to get prayed for. And, and what do I do now? A couple of things. Um, we never want to be more charismatic or less charismatic than the Bible. So just know what you bring in. So like if you if you grew up in a more traditional background, don't let your tradition inform you more than the scriptures inform okay. you. And if you grow up like holy rolling, you know, and you say, well no, this is what we're supposed to do, according to who? Like we're gonna do what the book says, not what a group of men and women decided right. in some denomination, you know? And I'm not knocking either of those. I'm just saying we want to be we, and I'm sure there are things that we need to relook at that we do because our sure. own self has gotten involved. First, a couple of things I would say for sure. In the book, we help people walk through. Let's do prayer and anointing right here, right now. Mm-hmm. 
We always encourage folks to do it under the authority of the local church if that is available. It's not always available. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes because of timing, sometimes because of just geography. Another thing I would say, though, especially if you go to 1122, you don't have to wait till the prayer and anointing service to be prayed right. for and anointed with oil. Honestly, at this point, I feel like somebody's getting anointed with oil and prayed over at the end of every service. For sure. I mean, that's yeah, just yeah. what we do now because the book says to do yeah. it. So again, and if there are things that make you uncomfortable, of course it makes you uncomfortable. This is the God of the universe <laughs> saying there is more than what is just natural. There is super natural, and that makes the natural man uncomfortable. Praise God for the uncomfortable. I would invite you to step into it with both feet. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing. Back to the dad. The dad falls on his face in mm-hmm. desperation. Amen. And that's how we're supposed to come to Jesus. That is exactly right. It's just like, all right, man, I, what's the oil going to do? What is the olive oil? I mean, what, you know, how is this going to work? What are we, yeah, he just wants you. If yeah. you're desperate, then you come, you know, to the preacher, to the elders, and you're like, I, what do you got to do? You tell me. I don't care. Whatever it is. Right, and if it's sacrifice a lamb and pour blood on the doorpost of your house, what does that have to do with anything? Mm-hmm. Okay, he's not telling us to do that anymore. That was one time in a specific time, but what he is telling us to do now, these days, according to James five, is gather some people together, anoint with oil, and pray for healing. Mm-hmm. That's what he's calling us to do. So that's what we need to do. So really, there's two groups of people that we're looking at. There is the people who are in the dad's shoes. They're desperate and facing a mountain that seems insurmountable, and they need deliverance. And then we have the disciples who they have their mountaintop experience, and they come down. And your point in the sermon is God does not reveal himself to us so that we can sit and soak it up on the mountaintop, but so that we can be sent to serve on mission. So can you speak to the group who maybe they're not in a desperate situation yet because we know we're all headed there at some point. But can, we, can you speak to the group who maybe are the disciples coming off of the mountaintop and what is their role in this, the biblical concept of deliverance and prayer and anointing? So one of your questions earlier was about, you know, the, these, these like incredible God experiences. Mm-hmm. All right, man, I, I have them at our church, you know, not every single time, but a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And those moments matter because those moments refuel us. Those moments inspire us. Those moments remind us that we are connected to Him. But the point of our life is not to just sit and soak in that moment for our own glory. It's to be used by Him to be squeezed out wherever He takes us. I mean, you, you've heard the analogy of a sponge, man. If, if you fill up a sponge and you don't squeeze it out, that thing rots. Mm. And that's what a lot of churches do. It's a lot, of, a lot of Christians do. They just walk into the church and like, feed me, feed me, feed me, but they never go and help other people discover a relationship with Jesus Christ, and your life gets rotten. And one of the greatest ways to experience the Lord, don't you think that the disciples experienced the Lord down at the foot of the mountain with the casting out of the demon? In a different way, but in a very significant way, not just the guys up on top of the mountain. And so when Jesus tells us, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and lo, I am with you always to the very ends of the age, that's what he's saying. You know, the way we said at our place, one of the greatest ways for you to deepen your walk with Christ is to help somebody else discover theirs. For sure. 
And so be on the lookout where you can be this agent of peace in somebody else's life. That's good. Where you can be the prayer, the one anointing, the one that... Because the way James... Because I think when James gives the instructions, like, all right, anybody sick? Gather the elders. He also says, anybody joyful? Sing a song. So you don't come to church like, Igor, what was me every single time? Like, right. oh, my life's terrible. There's also definitely a place for you to be happy and sing, for sure. Okay. And then he says, so anoint with the old prayer for the prayers of a righteous man, avail of month. And then he goes on to say, here's his, his example. He goes back to Mount Carmel. So week, whatever that was, three. Mm-hmm. He goes, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Here's what this means. Elijah was just a dude, man. Mm-hmm. He had his, I mean, and, and remember, we looked at Elijah's life. He struggled with depression, maybe, literally maybe bipolar. He was afraid of Jezebel. He's laying by the creek one day asking to die, you know, like he's just a dude. He had this moment on Mount Carmel, but he's also got fears and insecurities. Right. And James says God called that guy to pray that there would be no rain. It quit raining for three and a half years. Mm-hmm. Then he called him to, to pray for rain, and it started raining. So if God can use a guy like that mm. to change weather systems, then maybe he could use you sure. to change somebody's life. So pray like that, anoint like that. I don't think there are few deepening experiences more rich for me than praying for our people on prayer and anointing services. It is one of the most just Holy Spirit saturated, rich moments for me, the prayer. So like you said, being on that side of it, um, cause I've received the prayer and it's been massively foundational in a lot of t- periods of my life. And then to be on the other side of it too is just, it's so rich. Okay, so in closing, as we round out this week, and I feel like we could talk about this mountain for a long time, but um, towards the end of the chapter, you talk about f- freedom. And it's it kind of goes to the illustration of why you're walking around in your grave clothes, you're not dead anymore. So um, just in closing, can you touch to, to the people maybe who they have received deliverance and they are not bound to the porn addiction, the alcohol addiction, whatever it is for them. But yet they're still kind of carrying around that ball and chain behind them. What, what can you offer them? Yeah, there's two illustrations in the scriptures that I think um, open my eyes to this. One, you mentioned Lazarus is out of the grave and the first thing Jesus says is take off your grave clothes. The other would be the paralytic that Jesus sees at the pool of Bethesda and says, take up your mat and walk. So if so, they have been delivered, they have been justified, they have been set free. And if six months later you bumped into Lazarus and you're like, what is that smell? Oh, Lazarus, you've got on your grave clothes again. Right. What are you doing, man? That's rotten. Or you bumped into the paralytic guy who now is not paralytic and he's laying in that mat. That he laid in for 38 years? That thing's filthy. Sure. You'd be like, what are you doing? When we return to old sinful lifestyles, and you don't have to do the stuff you used to do because you're not the person you used to be. The old is gone. You're a new creation. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. The Proverbs would say, like a dog returns to its vomit. You'd be like, why would you do that? Right. That's what it looks like 
from heaven to the believer that is looking for comfort in a thing that is just nasty. You have been set free from that. Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when he tempts you, okay, temptation's one thing. Um, a friend of 1122, J.R. Vassar, he preached that saturated a couple mm, years yeah. ago, has this, like, his version of the definition of repentance is I refuse to be at peace with that sin in my life. Mm-hmm. That's what freedom is. Mm-hmm. Is there still a struggle? For sure, because we've got a tempting, lying enemy. But I refuse to lay down on my mat. I refuse to put on the grave clothes. I refuse to be at peace with that sin in my life. That's good. Any final words you'd offer? The scripture says it's for freedom that he came to set us free. And I don't know. I guess maybe we can get hung up on this whole thing and something Christie's funny sometimes. She's like, honey, sometimes you see a demon behind every bush. I'm like, no, sometimes I see two. <laughs> but this whole thing we can get kind of hung up on. But here's the here's why I, I think. Here's why Jesus did what he did and is doing what he is doing. It's because he wants his children to be free from the stuff that enslaves them. And he tells, him, he tells the disciples in Matthew 10, preach the gospel, heal the sick, cast out demons, raise the dead. That's like their marching orders, their modus operandi. Go do that. And then they went and did it. And somehow between there and here, the enemy really tries to shut it down with all of the, I mean, in Mark 7, it says it's the traditions of men that make the word of God of no effect. Think about that. The word of God, which is living and active, and which will accomplish the purposes for which he sent it and will not return void, the only thing on planet Earth that shuts that down are our traditions. Mm. So I just, I praise God that he is a Bible believer. It would have been tough for me to write this book with him if he wasn't, but he is, and I know him, and I know his heart, and I've been around him, and I've seen him like, okay, this is what it says, we're going to do it. The reason Jesus frees his people is because he's taking us to the Father, and he didn't want us taking all this foolishness with him, and it like it slaves us, and he, he, didn't, he didn't die that death so that we can stay in slavery and bondage. And while we are headed to an eternity with him, there is a freedom that can and does occur here on planet Earth through the spoken word and the power of the Holy Spirit. And people are freed up today Mm -hmm. from stuff that has long held them in bondage. And part of the problem we have in the present day church is the church has emasculated the gospel and ripped the power out of it and said, well, okay, we're going to just focus on your salvation and then we'll just get you to heaven and you're just going to, it's a suck fest between here and then. I don't believe that. Mm-hmm. That's not the God I believe in. Mm-hmm. That's, not, that's not what he put in me. No, that's not abundant life. That's not abundant life. So I also don't want to be, I don't want that, because I don't want that spectrum to swing in me so far to the other side that, 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 that I'm just encouraging people to chase experience because mm-hmm. then you just have people showing up and don't want anything to do with Jesus and they're like, just fill me up. Right. And then we've missed that. Mm-hmm. So somewhere between all experience and just just single word without power, somewhere in there is a place, and I believe our church is really in that place and working on getting more in that place where people show up and they go, I got a little bit of belief. Will you help my unbelief? And here's my kid, Mm -hmm. and I need help. And I praise God that 
that they're there, that we're here, that they're like we get to show up and pray for these people, and we've like we get to watch freedom happen. It's one of my greatest joys in ministry is getting to watch freedom happen. Mm. And I thank God that he would trust us with that. For mm-hmm. sure. For sure. Well, thank you guys for your time today. And I would just say if anyone's listening and you want prayer and you're like the dad feeling desperate on your face, um, please show up to one of our campuses, email someone at the church. We will pray for you somehow, some way. Um, because that's, that's what we're here to do. So, Pastor Joby, will you close us in prayer as we end our time? Yeah, and, and, and before I do, uh, the title of the book is not just a kitschy phrase, man. And the that's reason good. that you're praying is because if the tomb is empty, anything is possible. That's good. Let's pray. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for the power of the resurrection. God, we thank you that the same Spirit that resurrected the Son of God resides inside every single believer. God, there are times in our lives where the circumstances around us seem to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and it seems like relative to that, our faith isn't very big, but I thank you and I praise you that all it takes is the a mustard seed-sized faith that we say to this mountain, move, and it mm-hmm. has no choice because you are the mountain mover. Yeah, Lord, I pray for the men, the women, the children, the students right now, that feel like they are in an impossible situation. And I thank you. I thank you that by prayer, by faith in you, anything, 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 anything is possible. Lord, I pray that this week, chains would be broken. Freedom would be experienced. The gospel would be preached. Lord, demons would be cast out. And you would be glorified. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.